Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Joanne Guo. And I'm Sarah Gerber. We are the co-hosts of the Track 2 Podcast. The Track 2 Podcast explores the stories and people who create conditions for a thriving, vibrant society. This season, we bring you the voices of stakeholders who help shape philanthropy. Today, we're in conversation with Ken Ikeda, a serial entrepreneur and strategist obsessed with building capacity, assets, and relevance for mission-driven organizations. His passion and experience are reflective of the work he's done with youth, homeless, educators, activists, storytellers, artists, technologists, and broadcasters. Ken currently serves as CEO of the Association of Independence in Radio, also known as AIR. He's committed to challenging the status quo and creating more equitable outcomes. When not working or with his family, you might find Ken riding, braking, or trying to fix motorcycles. Ken holds a BA from Columbia University. The power of stories has never diminished. It's a superpower, right? I was drawn to audio because the best stories win. The person who tells the best stories runs the room, right? Movements are compelled by stories. Everything is driven by stories. We have this incredible network of talent that you can spend the rest of your life just closing your eyes and listening to. I, I have a deep love for this organization. I feel really privileged to be able to openly carry the independent flag for the underdogs. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. When did philanthropy or nonprofit work catch your interest to become part of your story and your journey? Yeah, that's a great question. It's I had known about philanthropy for many years. I was part of a high school program that I know had received some funding, but I really wasn't sure where. But in 2000, I was a graduate student in education and living in West Oakland. And I walked across the street, essentially a few blocks from where I was living, to uh, McClellan's High School. And I'd been sent there by my university sponsor, who wasn't my advisor, but someone who helped pay for my tuition and cover that cost. And so I, I owed hours of work. So I head over there and it was one of the craziest things I've ever observed in my life. I guess you'd say right off the top, I ended up staying there for 10 years. Mm. So it was not a bad experience, but it was something out of a movie. It was one of the lowest ranked schools in California at the time. So sorry for all the backstory, but ultimately I had been sent there to interview young people, to talk about education. And it's not that it wasn't on their mind, but it just wasn't foremost for them. Mm. It was about every day. It was about mm. the experience they're having in the moment. It's about things they had to negotiate and navigate. And I just thought it was so fascinating. And of course, I was this sort of graduate student with too much time to think freely about what's interesting in the world without any real sense of it myself. And the only way I could sort of make sense of their conversations was to record it. So I took a video camera from the campus, showed up there, started recording. The principal became interested in what I was doing, gave me a closet where I could leave the camera and said, hey, you should just start a program. Like, this is really healthy for young people to be able to talk about their lives, mm. right? And be asked questions, but really for the purpose of being listened to, not being evaluated. And I hated grad school so much. So <laughs> I, I was like, that's a great idea. And I was like, you know, but I have to work this job because that's how I pay my tuition and, and cover my cost of living. And so Lynn Dodd introduced me to Bill Somerville, who runs Philanthropic Venture Foundation in Oakland. Mm. And Bill's son is now a pretty known, Frank Somerville's a KKDU host, I think. Bill is a philanthropist, and he had a five-minute conversation with me and gave me $6,000. That's not ultimately how philanthropy works, but it was a great introduction. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, okay, that's more than enough for me to hire help and figure it out. Mm. And so it was the start of a, a whole career path for me, and I'm still in media today. Uh, and that program was called Youth Sounds. Yeah, so that was my first exposure. And it really was different. I didn't write a proposal. I got a conversation, and the response was immediate. 
And now, of course, I always plan 12 to 18 months to really cultivate a relationship and interest. I spend a lot of time researching or writing, and it's the long game. That was the short game. Mm-hmm. For me, it was the best way to introduce myself to philanthropy. Yeah, an incredible community. Mm-hmm. And actually, that school was, I mean, candidly over-indexed in philanthropic support. Mm, interesting. Because it was too egregious an example of a community that was failing by all metrics in terms of education and opportunity. I remember the San Francisco Foundation came in and spent millions and millions of dollars over a five-year period on a West Oakland initiative, and they just weren't prepared. Mm. So my other introduction to philanthropy was people had no idea what they're doing, giving away millions of dollars. Yeah. And in some cases, they got hustled. Mm. Someone bought private property with it, it was well-documented. Organizations suddenly sprang up. Ultimately, that responsibility, in my opinion, was with the foundation. But that school was never under-resourced in the period of time I was there. It was well-resourced. Fascinating. Um, and everyone desperately wanted a piece of transforming that community. Hmm. And it just isn't about money. It's, well, at least specific to McClellan's, it really was never about money. Right. From a school perspective, a lot of times they're trying to understand how to resource kids in an environment like school, when that oftentimes isn't the most challenged environment that they're in. There's a big disconnect from all the other environments they're trying to survive and why that's showing up in school or showing up in other environments. So that's really fascinating to hear from a perspective of being on the inside, but not as a student. That's really interesting. Yeah, I could go on forever about, about McClyman's. I was like the Chinese delivery guy. I'm Japanese, but to the community, I was the Chinese food delivery guy, right? I'd show up in these meetings. Lynn, who I just deeply love, moved me from that closet to ultimately giving me a giant former woodworking shop space mm. where I ran programming for all that time. And she made me earn my stripes. She was testing me and she was protecting the community, you know, because my affiliation was with Stanford and no one wanted another institution in there. Yeah, it was a, a learning ground and family for me. And it's still the closest group of people I've ever worked with are the folks who came out of the East Sounds program. And the McClymans is one of those communities where it's just so proud and protective. Many of the kids who might look black were African immigrants. I felt really aligned with McClymans because West Oakland is such a small community. It's physically isolated in a way that the rest of Oakland's not. It's a great story. One of my staff members, Matthew, who is now doing AI for Amazon, right? He was a rock star in college. He went to Brown. He was a Spanish language teacher. And one day I looked across the parking lot and there's a kid being held out of a window. I'd been there for five or six years at this point, so I felt very comfortable. And I just walked over to the classroom, knocked on the door, and it's like to the teacher who was Matthew. I said, are you okay? Yeah, I got this under control. And I was like, what, what class are you teaching? Spanish. And I was like, you speak Spanish? He goes, no. So, so I ended up talking to him later after the kid was let go and helped him get his class settled back again. And he was like, yeah, I don't know how to speak Spanish, but I'm a musician. I'm just trying to make it. And very smart guy. I love kids. And he ended up teaching our music class, becoming full time. And his dog got stolen. And we told the attendance officer at the school. And a day later, the dog came back with a note from Anthony, who helped recover the dog, saying like, everything's cool. No one's going to mess with your dog. And we took good care of him. And it's just one of those communities where it was so small, you were trusted or taken in, at least accepted. It felt very safe, very supportive. Mm. And everyone was rooting for each other. It was very different than your perception from outside. Mm-hmm. But it took a minute. It took a minute to get welcomed in and accepted. That's amazing. So you grew up in New York? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, immigrant kid, then moved to New York for college. There's a lot here. Certainly coming from St. Louis, you had had some outsider experiences yourself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, St. Louis is very formative for me. I mean, the, not a lot of Asian folks in St. Louis. My parents, I think they got there in 76, started the Japanese language school, started the Japanese festival, which now has 100,000 visitors a year. My mom, 
is a superwoman. She taught at the high school. She runs two nonprofits right now. She's in her 70s. And yeah, they've just made a community. I, I, I joke all the time. I never had dinner with just the nuclear family. I come back from college. I never had like my chair saved. My room was preserved kind of creepily, you know, <laughs> although lots of people were sleeping in it. But my spot at the dinner table was always taken. Mm. So I was always in the fold up chair coming back home. It's still that way. My mom is just a social force. So I never felt like an outsider as much as I never felt like the work was done, bringing people into the community. Mm. It's something I'm still trying to do in practice, the degree my mom is able to naturally lead change, socialize change, compel change through community with community. I, I like how in answering the philanthropy question, the components of that start further back in your story, because I think those are such formative and impactful parts of understanding the work of philanthropy. That's definitely something I've learned from her, but just haven't learned fully. Talk about some of your frustrations with philanthropy. Yeah, I just find philanthropy really complex, specific to being a program officer, someone who is committed to the mission and vision and values, distributing resources that they're aligned with. That's been one of the things that I've grappled with. It's not their money. That's where most sort of variation and experience and, and distribution happens with funds. It's so heavily determined by what moves them, right? And yet they're not the, the source of the resource, the wealth itself that's being regranted. I'm grateful for it, but it's also a source of great frustration for me. After 25, almost 30 years of working in the nonprofit space, I've really enjoyed the ventures that haven't relied on it. It's kind of like graduate school. You can be very smart, but you aren't necessarily close, right? So you may understand intellectually the impact of work that's being done and how important it is, but you just don't know it until you walked in those shoes. And academia is, to me, the closest parallel, and this is true of any field, but I'm familiar with the education field. Well, they'll teach for a few years, right? And suddenly, 25 years later, with three years of classroom experience, they're the secretary of education. And that's not a far-off pitch. My classmates now, right, because I'm almost 50, they're distributing tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars over their careers as advisors to philanthropy, as program officers. And I'm biased. To me, though, it's not upsetting as the power dynamic, because I have respect for those who come in and at least make the effort to learn and understand. But I think the biggest pitfall of philanthropy, especially program officer philanthropy, which is not their own money, is they find their set of friends. They become the bar by which they trust everyone else who's new or potentially new. And they feel like they're entitled to ignore everyone else. Now that I work in journalism and media in general, it's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. It's blind faith. It's lazy. Laziness definitely bothers me. And then the power dynamic is hard because you, you can't challenge them. Fortunately, there's enough diversity in funding and there's enough resources in general, in my opinion, that you don't have to stop because that one person doesn't listen. But you see enough of it that it's a real problem. Mm. It's, it's a tough question. Thank you for answering. I think you have a different level of experience with philanthropy than some of our previous guests, even though we have this cross-section of people who all have some stake in it, some of them more as philanthropists, some of them as nonprofit board members. We interviewed Fred Dust, who is a board member of Sundance and KQED. And so it's just this variety of people. I personally struggle with the structure where people haven't amassed the kind of privilege necessary to make a big impact or to follow the money. It's just kind of what you're talking about. Like, it'd be better in some cases if the philanthropist was handing you the check directly than to work through a middleman. Because maybe they'd be inspired to give more, or maybe they would see some other resource that you need more than money. 
which goes back to your earlier point that it's not always just about money. Sometimes it's about removing a structural barrier. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm hearing in your story is a desire for an open society. You're looking for places where there is some form of belonging. And if that is locked out, then it doesn't feel right, right? That's the problem. It feels all locked up. Mm -hmm. It makes it hard for newcomers. Mm -hmm. That's never good for society. People living only on the outside. Mm -hmm. We did an emergency fund at AIR, the organization where I work, for COVID relief. Journalists are not paid living wage unless you're full-time staff. And so, you know, we had hundreds of applications, right? And these are applications that may not be lengthy. It's not 10 pages of writing and theorizing on change and communities and society, but they're emotional, they're real, and they're of the moment and have real importance, tangible importance. And I relished every moment of that process, only with the hope of being able to give more resources away. And it also made me think of all of the entities that exist, and they say, essentially, don't take unsolicited proposals. Ford Foundation. (laughs) (laughs) They they take 1%, less than 1% of unsolicited. And and just for full transparency, I think I've been a recipient, regardless of where I've worked the last 16 years of Ford funding every year. Mm. I'm currently Ford funded. Different program officers each time. By the way, Darren Walker's leadership at Ford Foundation is a different Ford Foundation than what Ford Foundation was Mm. prior to him being at the helm. And it has changed. It has changed in terms of uh, encouraging nonprofits to advocate in ways that nonprofits were really afraid to before. In fact, Darren Walker was my program officer right before he became president of the foundation. He was my program officer. What I will say about Ford, what they do do, in my opinion, is better than most places is if you actually can reach them, meaning get their email, their phone, they respond. Other places simply won't list who they are. And I get it. Like they can decide however they want. But sometimes those structures that those policies don't align, in my opinion, with the the impact that they both say they want to have and claim to have, you might as well shut down as an open foundation. And that's, they only stay going, they only stay operating because of the legal requirements. But they might as well just say like, look, we're going to endow this group forever. We're going to endow that group forever. That's how we're going to spend our fortune. Or we never spend our fortune now, but these 10 groups can count on us for the next 30 years because they're taking up space otherwise. It's a huge problem, in my opinion. That's not the factor of laziness. That's not being open to shift the moment of need, right? That's about their convenience, their process. And that's also that emotional disconnect. Like for many places, it's they're managing their workflow, which I get, they have every right to do. But that's really what that's about. Yeah, It's like we're gone three, out, three weeks out of the year or we take six months off. Like we only do this cycle, right? They might as well be donor advised funds. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're going to have fun. <laughs> I would be remiss if we didn't ask you to talk about AIR. Tell yeah. us about this organization that you lead. Sure. AIR stands for the Association of Independence and Radio. It's 33rd year. Although I'm still unraveling the history. There's a famous story where there are seven people around a table in New York City but I think 30, 40 people have claimed to be around that table. So I'm still deciphering who is where. Um, <laughs> it's good, uh, it's good for sorry, storytelling and the, uh, being a journalist. <laughs> yeah, it, it was founded essentially to advocate for independent journalists, freelance journalists, to have a means by which their stories could be pitched and accepted. It was a validation that uh, full-time employment status is not a reflection of your ability. It's to a certain degree your fortune and timing, and of course you're good, but that there's a whole industry of capable people who also are there to contribute. So it, in a sense, it validated and, and advocated for that to, to stay open, and it's, it continues to do so. We're a membership of 1,500 people. It's a professional organization. We provide training. We provide fellowships. We publish a very important annual industry rates guide, establishing what should be the floor for compensation. We have a code of fair practice, which has been going for some time and, and has been particularly important of late because practice and, and compensation are fundamentally equity issues. 
So how do you treat people who are new to your organization? Right? What is a reasonable request when negotiating for a contract? How can you, as a studio or station, better support successful freelancer interactions? Because it does require something different. And it's been phenomenal because the one thing that I've discovered about AIR, and I've been there just under two years, is our membership really represents what's happening in the industry writ large, podcasting, broadcasting, radio, television, uh, and engineers, because you can reach at a sort of an aggregate level, you can kind of see what's happening, where the challenges, where the hiccups, where people really moving towards. When podcasting you know, was trending, when Pushkin Productions, Malcolm Gladwell's new company started, like we saw multiple people sort of move in that direction with applications mm-hmm. and fix their profiles. We can see what's happening in real time. And so that's been just a tremendous privilege and an important data point that we're building the organization around. If you're Gimlet and you get bought by Spotify, which has happened, or Wondery, which is a a studio that does a lot of podcasts, but also secures IP for television and film. They just got bought by Amazon. We are a source for those companies to come to and say, who can we hire? We're growing. Mm -hmm. So we're also a talent network Mm -hmm. and we actively facilitate that. It's a really interesting organization that because it's been around so long and because public radio in particular and NPR has been a standard bearer for the quality of reporting and rigor of reporting and journalism, and it's been around long enough to seed all these companies, the folks who founded these startups all come from public broadcasting, public radio. It's kept AIR really relevant in regards to knowing what's happening. The opportunity for AIR is growing to be more international. The power of stories has never diminished. It's a superpower, right? I was drawn to audio because the best stories win. The person who tells the best stories runs the room, right? Movements are compelled by stories. Everything is driven by stories. We have this incredible network of talent that you could spend the rest of your life just closing your eyes and listening to or watching because lots of people use their hands when they talk. I I have a deep love for this organization. I feel really privileged to be able to openly carry the independent flag for the underdog. Thank you for that explanation. I have several questions, but I want to give Sarah an opportunity to ask some questions as well. And I'll come back to mine. Mine are particularly around compensation and equity. We can come back to that. Yeah, there's so many directions we can go with this. What role could or should philanthropy have in supporting storytellers, media makers, journalists, those who are doing what you just described as some of the most important work? You know, I'm, I'm actively struggling with that question now. We, we are a very small organization. Our budget's $1.5 million. Mm-hmm. Ideally, we two two and a half million million to have a little bit of added capacity. I think the big challenge is that people believe that the best stories come from institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's our fault as heir that we haven't actively and effectively educated people that the industry is driven by individuals, not institutions. The institutions are where money goes, right? We have to change the unit of investment so that people know and actually are able to invest at the level of content creation, which is the individual. So we need to fundamentally shift how we are structured and how we operate so we can do that on behalf of our members. Secondly, it comes down to who tells the best stories. And as you both know, like that involves an editor, not just a reporter, right? It can involve a producer and an engineer. Like there's many contributing elements and people, talent to a single story or production. But I think what we need to do is convince folks that you it can in fact have a very vibrant, reliable, professional sector that is completely comprised of people who are unaffiliated. We are their de facto affiliation. And the thing that we've had a little bit of traction around, which I think is very, very true and is going to play out in the next couple of years, is these radio stations, studios, newspapers, they in fact are very, very reliant on independent, right? They, they do their daily reporting with the capacity they have. Anything new that comes up, a deep investigative series they want to pursue, a unique feature, like they're calling independence to, to deliver those. And those are some often the bumps that they get that are viral, that get picked up nationally or that engage a whole new audience, right, who become subscribers or members, which is to the bottom line important. 
So we're doing more and more to educate philanthropy about that and to say, look, you can't just go to the institution. The institutions aren't incentivized to change how they operate. They're not actually paying independence a living wage. There's still a huge scale in disparity in compensation for executives and editorial and newsroom staff. And of course, media and public media specifically is, is undergoing a racist reckoning. So these institutions, the question right now is, do you build them back up? Do you trust them or do you let them burn down? And then the talent needs somewhere to go because the stories and news aren't going to stop. I really start with, can we educate people about how much it actually costs to create a, a fantastic feature? And can we provide some memes, make it visual about like, you know, this is how much it costs for the same two people, same exact two people or three people, if we include the engineer, to produce a story for ProPublica and for them to pr produce a story as independence, mm -hmm. right? You don't lose their skills. You don't lose their commitment to professionalism, the quality of their reporting. But this is going to be sometimes 10, 15 times more in terms of their proposal to the, to the foundation because they're leveraging this talent to build in all sorts of other stuff. Yeah, infrastructure. Right. When you only have so many dollars in the industry, that matters. That matters to us as air. Mm. We want all these places to have money. We want everyone to. But in the end, like part of the, the struggle of journalism and, and production, particularly in terms of inviting new voices in, which are primarily the folks of color, is the pie is so limited in terms of resources. These institutions are holding on to them. And their narrative is actually like, we can't do more for the money we have. And it's because they're structurally unwilling to change. It just comes down to that. So we're in a fight right now, just candidly. We're in an open fight. And the DEI push right now in the world has been an important lever for us to be able to challenge them back. Because in any other context, the institutions have more resources. They have more guarantees of the quality of work. But if all things were equal, they have nothing to stand on. We're a bit closer to a fair fight right now than we have been in some time. Hmm. I think that takes us back to this equity piece and thinking about what is fair. One of the things that you just mentioned, or at least it, the way I heard it, was that you are really making the invisible visible by collecting this information and then presenting it in a way so that it can be negotiable. Mm -hmm. Because you can know what you charge as a freelancer and Sarah can know what she's going to charge. But if there isn't a standard chart to put before an institution, then it's anybody's guess. And I think one of the exceptional things that you've done in your time at AIR is to do this deep dive on compensation and really look at what's needed for the individual. I would also like to talk a little bit about how freelance journalism, whether that be broadcast or newspapers writing, is changing and will change. And it just signals you're seeing toward the future. I personally feel like freelancers are the future. We're going to have to find a more portable system for people to carry their equity. That might be portable pensions, that might be portable retirement, but it has to be something to give people the security that they need to do their best work and to move from job to job, just as you would expect if you were working on projects inside a large institution. That's right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm agreeing it is that complicated. Mm -hmm. you know, I think one reason why independents are so critical, and, and it may be the reason that ultimately convinces the longstanding institutions in power to open up a little bit, is independents. They're the cultural change agents, right? So they move from place to place, from gig to gig, and they bring with them what they've learned. And generally, those are the best practices. Mm -hmm. And they're really critical because their mobility, sometimes they're, you know, juggling two or three gigs with two or three different studios. And so when they can say, like, look, you know, Neon Hum does this really well, right? The Times did this really well. And actually, like, I've carried that with me to every place I've gone since, right? This is my third time back in rotation at NPR. Like, you should really use this practice. So many of us who've gone through this work with Tom have just said, like, that's game changing. 
it's kind of like when like Descript or you know Trend comes on and they show you how to like transcribe, right? You just save thirty percent of your work time. Just fundamentally change. But but when you're in an institution in which they don't invest in professional development, they don't mm-hmm. talk about culture, and they certainly don't actively try to change it. Your independents are the ones who are doing that. They're the ones who are getting the beer afterwards and saying like, "Why do you guys do that? I don't get it." And then they can go back and at some staff meeting be like, "This is the third time you know I've worked with Joanne, and it doesn't make sense." And she's right. I know that sounds really small, but that's how you build new standards of practice. That's how you reculture places because ultimately they'll lose the talent, right? As a new studio emerges and says, we want to hire you. The daily just burns through talent. They just literally, they work you to death and you leave. No one lasts long there. And it's New York Times, so maybe they can keep doing that for a couple more years. Maybe not. But there are other places where it's really hard to replace that talent. And losing you know, two editors or two producers at a small station can shut you down. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I agree, like we would desperately love to arrive at a structure that allows folks to carry with them their portfolio of work and accrue some equity in their own careers and lives and then support them to continue to introduce new standards and practices and reculture places too. That is in fact like our next big objective. Can we be the employee of record for independence? To engage this remarkable talent, this is the baseline. So come back when you can raise those funds and if it's a difference of $500, that could be significant for some places just to acknowledge that. But you could say, like, come back in two weeks. If you really want that feature, this is something you want done in a week, then pay that money and figure it out. That's really, at some point, someone has to say back to these places, figure it out. The number of stations and studios who have hired heads of diversity for mid six figures, but can't pay independents $200 more. If you, you added all those, those gigs up, they still wouldn't nearly, they wouldn't come close to that salary, right? So it's a, it's a matter, in my opinion, of prioritization. I think this is about the future of work in general, which makes it relevant to a lot of people. Yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to hear some of your experiences with disinformation, misinformation, and and what's happening in this industry. Yeah, I have to say that we don't confront it very actively. The reason being that our people are not those people. I think it's the simplest way to say it. It's, it's a different tribe, right? They will starve and they, they'll take two more roommates on top of their six to avoid taking a job that is about that. It's kind of like a Hippocratic Oath. And again, not judging those who are deceived and produce news that then gets manipulated. That does happen. But we haven't directly been confronted by that. And we've asked that question before. But, you know, in the struggling industry, it's hard to have courage because when the bottom line falters, jobs get lost. Some of this work is a different kind of association. There are association of journalists who are primarily tied to broadcast. And I think the battle there is much greater because they're confronted with Fox News and things like that. But for print, it's primarily limited to very specific sites. Yeah, I was actually thinking podcasting and hate speech specifically against minorities. Yeah. And so okay. uh, I should have been more specific. I'm sorry. Yeah. It is a broad topic in other places, whether it's the United States or other countries. There are certainly the people who are generating written content that goes out into a troll farm. Then within the United States, we've seen a big change in social media policies. And along with that change, podcasting has become much more attractive to extremists Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that they're in any way affiliated with AIR because I agree there's a journalism oath that, that people subscribe to. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's ethics. But I also think that it's going to shape the future of podcasting in particular and the way social media might be affecting disinformation, misinformation within the audio sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my my quick response to podcasting specifically, it is it is already far more commodified than radio in my opinion. I think we've already lost the battle. And there was this long shot potential for podcasting to be about free form and longer form storytelling and conversation. 
but it is so commodified by investment that it's just all about the money. Of course, it's going to be about that. But the money accelerates the sloppy, the profane, the clickbait in ways that an industry that's emergent still and still the Wild West without that massive amount of capital invested would have done some self-regulating in a different way, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. I think you made some fantastic points about how commodified podcasting has become. And there are several big players. There's lots of money, deep pockets in the platforms. I think that that's something that you are also passionate about with the Asian American community. Yeah, I mean, it's been an incredibly exhausting and frustrating and angering week. Yeah. But nothing new. I'm part of a show called Self-Evident, and it's a reported series by a younger generation of Asian American producers. And they represent a group who have all worked on major shows like Planet Money and Morning Edition and for Gimlet. And they were all told to wait their turn. And they're unwilling to wait their turn. Back in April 2020, we did a three-part series on anti-Asian violence. We've got this remarkable advisory community of almost 400 people who advise each episode and do surveys for us. And they provide the pulse about what's relevant, what's pressing, what's concerning. In the context of philanthropy and storytelling and the ability to go long, freeform, 50 minutes, an hour and a half, I find podcasting to be something that could be a new tool for nonprofits, social movements, mm. and activists to check in because it's different to read someone's thoughts than to hear them in their own voice. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. No, you can sense the warmth, the hesitation, the confidence, whatever it is. You're right. I think it's very, very different. But I would say I am a diehard believer in the investigative form, or at least the rigor of investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. It it could ultimately yield fictional narratives. But we have to commit to having a community of people who are allowed to do that work. Yeah, You, You have to be able to circle someone. I was talking to an attorney earlier today. She was talking about how she had to learn the billboard business. She knew nothing about it, but it was her job to know as much as humanly possible so that she could do an interrogation of this business model. That's what we need. We need a whole core of people who can take down some of these hateful, violent shows in their communities and do it in a way way that's really persistent. And that's the kind of resourcing we need. And that's where I hope philanthropy can play a role, Mm -hmm. right? If you don't have courage and you're rich as hell, that's a problem. Like if one thing money should give you is not entitlement, it should be courage because you can fail and be okay. You can make a poor investment and be okay. There's just no excuse for me when I meet cautious philanthropists. Like, what are you doing this for? It's clearly for yourself. That's fine. But have some guts. Yeah. I think it's just missing. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I go back to the laziness, but the courage is the other piece that drives me crazy. And you need people who are just like, I care enough about this that I'm, I'm all in. Or I'm into this point. Count on me. Again, whatever the space is, whatever the role someone's playing, it has to be part of the movement. We all need each other. And so I think journalism has to do a better job. Podcasting has to do a better job. Folks who want to be part of that core that does the deep investigative work to circle around what's happening that's poisonous. But we have to we have to recognize each other and support each other. The nonprofit sector is needlessly competitive and it's unproductive. And if we we're more generous with each other and actually driven by the same values or goals, then we could actually distribute those resources much more smartly. It just requires change and all that's super hard. I love what you said about courage. That's a powerful statement for what we're exploring here. And it's true that funders should at least be able to meet the entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, the leaders in a similar space of courage. Like that's what these people are doing, at least meet that level of courage. Mm-hmm. That should be the standard. So there's a more of a level playing field there, even if there are different power dynamics, which is a problem. And that's a separate thing. 
But one thing to do that I think would be part of shifting even power dynamics is having similar levels of courage in terms of addressing big problems and not being worried about what it makes you look like, which is a lot of times what I think makes people timid to do the bold moves that philanthropy can do if it puts its mind to it. Mm -hmm. And journalism, I think, is a really interesting space for that. Journalism is our next season. So that was something we were thinking about. But I, I think it's also, to go back to what you were saying, Sarah, about courage, I think so many of these things are about fear of retaliation, about fear of what could happen, not to yourself, but to your loved ones. When I'm saying hate, I mean, we're talking about people having very sophisticated campaigns where they're harassed or physically harmed. Yeah. And I don't want to make light of that for anyone. But I I do think that with numbers comes power. And so thinking about this in the collective form and in an organized form where you can have an affiliation, a belonging with a group that stands for something, not just against something, Mm -hmm. but for something, for the kind of future that you want, that creates a very different outcome, a very different response in what people are willing to do and stand for. Even if you're just standing for it, Ken, you were saying something I equated to commit. You're basically wanting people to just commit. It doesn't have to be the top level. It just has to be like, are you in or not? Is this your thing? People can bring different resources. One of the things that is absolutely necessary is The will. You have to have the will. You can't commit without the will to commit and to stick with it. That's definitely something that America is struggling with. We're struggling as as an entire society across ages to know what those places are and what those affiliations are and those centers of belonging. You did a beautiful job talking about how you create community in a place where you didn't grow up. But you found a way to relate and you found an interest. You showed up and made a contribution. Mm-hmm. And that thing became something bigger than you ever could have planned. Mm-hmm. You, you were already on a track to do something. You were already pursuing something in graduate school. I feel like stories are the way that we create that change. Some of it is about a direct campaign. Some of it is about giving people sound bites or talking points. But it's also about allowing people to practice what it feels like to openly talk about these issues Mm. and then sort of get up the courage because courage isn't something that happens all at once, right? Yeah, that's a very good point. The other thing that happens with voice is you can hear someone questioning in their words. And you can give people the benefit of the doubt in ways that you otherwise maybe couldn't in black and white text. That's another way that you can take apart some of the fear that prevents people from getting involved at that level. Just wondering what the intention of the other person is. And then if you're not clear, or it seems like the intention is is less than what you'd like to see from that group, then you can ask them, to clarify what their intention is. But until we start having these conversations in long form, it's going to be very hard for people to grow and to know how to have that conversation. And it can't happen with the same people you talk to all the time. Mm -hmm. That's so huge. Mm -hmm. To to reach across the choir, and that is the biggest thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And the the longer form conversations, interactions that are not the bite-sized versions we have on social media that are actual ability to dive in deep and to really interact and engage and have a thoughtful process that's more than two minutes long. 
Yeah, should we do a tangent on how we should have a siesta every day where we can listen to things or if there wasn't a water shortage that everyone takes a bath every night and listens to something? <laughs> we got we have to introduce this practice somehow. That's the thing, is that it's not for everyone. Audio isn't the right modality for everyone, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. There's a lot to it. Yeah, no, I think the energy of it is and the ability to sort of read that is everything mm-hmm. about audio. And then you get the great surprise of realizing, oh, that's what you look like. Like now I can put the energy towards an expression. So yeah, it's a special medium. And there's, I think it also parallels our lives in the closest way. We're talking about these different forms, like writing or watching films, especially the conversational interview style of audio. We have conversations of whatever kind and length and depth. It is something that everyone has some experience with. So that parallel, I think, allows for a kind of access into the ideas because the medium itself feels more familiar than maybe some of the others or more closely related to our own experience, which is pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how do you talk to philanthropists about audio? Or have you had that conversation about not, not um, why, why the podcast, but like why you chose audio to engage? Oh, interesting. It is interesting people who maybe are closest to impacting someone like us or in this space or this conversation and yet doesn't think they have something to contribute in conversations like this, which is my whole point and that they are accessible and they're parallel to people's regular lives and like there's something there. And yet it's surprising how some people just don't understand how to bridge their contribution in other spaces into a space like this. And I think that happens for people in high-powered positions, as well as those living normal lives. And that maybe is partly why this medium is powerful, is because it really does bring all those people into this space in a way that I think is different than other mediums. And it does it in a way that really connects with the lived experience of that person, with their story, with the essence of them versus whether they're being quoted in an article or, you know, have a cameo in a film. Those are not the same sort of thing. I think this space does have a little bit more of a public square feeling to it, which is, I think, my answer to your question for why we chose this medium for our exploration in particular, because we're interested in civil society. We're interested in the spaces where all the forms and structures of how we live together intersect into one space. And so how we bring people into that space is an important part of how we consider it. Sometimes that requires really impassioned and persuasive emails from Joanne. <laughs> I have no doubt we're in our st- short interactions, you're very good at that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. we're, we're a strengths-based podcast, right? So it's about conversation, but we're only going to talk about the things that you know about. Yeah, yeah. Some people require a little more encouragement that, yes, actually, what you know is valuable to someone else. Yeah. People struggle with this. Yeah. yeah you know, and as, as you're sharing this, I just thought, like, if there's a group of people who are professionally trained to be quite good at listening, mm. but who have the sort of privileged position of tuning out, hmm. it's philanthropists. Yeah. So, like, I and, and I think. You know, in these interactions, we have this benefit, an additional benefit of video, but like you do have to learn to listen, right? So that we're not stepping on each other as we talk and things like that. So anyways, I was just curious, just not to set up off. No, I I think it's great. I think of it like music. It's one thing to read a conversation and a dialogue, but when you can hear it, there's a whole different cadence and you can get this essence of the person and what they're trying to say or 
maybe it's not what they're trying to say and they're failing miserably. That's all an important part of the process of having a conversation. Sometimes that's how we learn. We, we wouldn't necessarily learn it in another way. So Sarah and I have been talking about this sort of future scenario where there's a blackout, let's say. Big blackout caused by some disinformation. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And you have no way of communicating with, say, someone 45 miles away or on the other side of the planet. For me, my fear, like the dystopian future, is rather than having an open world right, of information and sharing and learning, we're going to have increasingly segregated communities. Because we choose to listen to what we listen to, we tune out what we don't align with, and proximity becomes less and less of an issue. So we can be in isolation, but feel like we're part of a community. And we may find ourselves instead surrounded physically or literally by people who are, you know, have violence and hatred towards those views. So I don't know what that looks like, mm -hmm. but I think less about social mobility and I think more about insular walls mm -hmm. of learning and thinking. And that interactions between people will also be all coordinated through technology. So that's a big fear. And I think we're going to lose ways of being intimate, right? not physically intimate, but just intimate with other people. And we're going to be borrowing other people's words. Like we're just going to be this fire hose of borrowed language from a few people, which really scares me. Mm. You don't want these social influencers to be speaking for you, but they already are for young people, right? So if you can't think for yourself, if you can't generate your own thoughts, then it's a big problem. But that's the negative side of things. <laughs> so I think there's really something to be said for that, welcoming the next generation in and teaching them about some of the principles and ethics that you want to abide by and also teaching them about quality versus quantity. We're like so happy that we have 100 to 150 people listening to each episode. We're like... We filled the room. There you go. We filled the room with 150 people and a few more will trickle in and they'll get to hear this. And you look at that over time. It doesn't have to be 15,000. It just has to be a meaningful number to you. And I feel like we probably shouldn't have 10,000 people listening to us because that might be disproportional to what our voice is. I don't know. But it I think in depends. the future, the search results for the topics you cover will come up alongside those of shows that have a million. I, I, I think that's really true. Like It won't always be by ranked order. Right. Because there's going to be all sorts of other algorithms that are about people specifically like you, Sarah, like you, Joanne. And all of those sort of responses and discoveries are going to get manipulated. And the end result of that in some ways will be this show with fewer viewers now will be at the top of those results. The other underlying motivation for Sarah and I thinking toward the future here was that AI needs a diverse collection of voices, yeah. hopefully millions of voices. So I, I, everything for me, I've drawn the people who are able to, if not articulate, at least share where they are in their lives who have this capacity to both take on and listen and also share their sort of human experience because it's something that I have to very much actively work at. When I find myself around people who are just really good at it, it's just joy. It's all in joy. That's like life-sustaining. Yeah, I've just been incredibly fortunate. That's my world, my happy place. It's reason enough to fight, but it's my reason for fighting. And then having the kids and the family and all that stuff, all these things matter, like how we live, how we walk, how we talk, and living by karma, it all matters in the end. That's my, my mom. Beautifully said. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. It brought it full circle for me. It was your early experience of what drew you into that high school and your initial first step into philanthropy. I think that's a great place to wrap up. I really appreciate you going deep there because I know it's been a hard week. I'm really honored that you're willing to talk about that with us mm -hmm. and also find these ways to keep getting up again. 
Well, I, I really, honestly, just, I know it's still recording, but just to both of you, that was a lot of fun. I hope you have something you can use. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I had too much fun, but thank you uh, for just the chance to talk to. Of course. I appreciate it. I mean, like you said earlier, that's why you have good editors too, which we happen to also be. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Just switch our head around here. <laughs> good skill. Speaking of and see the magic happen. And, and, and as you're cursing me, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's great. It, it was a really fun conversation. Yeah. It went places we didn't expect. And to be honest, it's every conversation we have, even with people we know well. Yes. We put a microphone in front of somebody and suddenly you learn things about them that you never, ever would have gotten out of them mm -hmm. over dinner. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ken. We really appreciate it. No, a blast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. One of the qualities that really stood out most about Ken was his adaptability. Mm -hmm. His ability to go from St. Louis to New York to Palo Alto and then decide that Oakland was home. That was it. Right. And his reason for deciding that Oakland was home, or at least how he described it to us, was about belonging. Mm. His ability to create community there. Like he saw a role for himself as a listener. Right. And how powerful that was to youth. Mm -hmm. Never had a listener dedicated to collecting their story and their experience. It's a very powerful experience, as you know, both of us have experienced in creating this, is being able to hold that space for someone to share their story is, I believe, always transformative. There is something that the person who's sharing their story walks away with that they cannot get in any other space. Yeah. And that exercise in of itself is enough for me to create that kind of process. Then, of course, you get all the other things. We get to experience it. Our listeners get to experience it. There's a compounding effect. I am always impressed by how it impacts the person sharing their story. One of the things I loved about Ken sharing his experience with McClyman's High School is I think a lot of people would be intimidated to, <laughs> to just show up into that environment. And he clearly wasn't. There's a lot of factors that go into that. He was starting to develop this listening posture, which allows you to go into a lot more spaces than you would be able to otherwise. So there's a kind of accessibility when that's the way you enter a space. I felt like he had compassion mm -hmm. for their stories. There was a particular type of representation in Hollywood for this. So think mm -hmm. poetic justice and dangerous minds and these movies that were about those kids. Right. Yeah. That very much uh, a part of the stereotype. Yep. And it absolutely got in the way of people's ability to, quote unquote, break the cycle. Yeah. And for other people to approach those environments and listen mm -hmm. in the way that Ken was listening rather than coming in and preaching, saving or rescuing. Right. And, and so that's where my comment comes from with compassion mm. is I didn't feel like he was going to strong arm anyone and shape them up. He was there to really hear about what their experience was. And that was exceptionally advanced coming from a time when popular culture would tell you that that was just not where a Stanford grad student belonged. Right. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect for his own moral courage yeah. to see for himself. And at the same time, seem to be able to take that energy and sit behind the desk as it is mm. and allow somebody else to talk about their experience of their world. 
And I thought that parallel to Wayne's conversation was really interesting too, because Wayne talks about living in the neighborhood and how many people in the neighborhood where he grew up did not leave their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that really struck me about what he talked about in terms of McClyman's is how funded the school was, how Mm. resourced it was, how it Mm. was this place (laughs) and may still be this place where people want to come in and solve the problem, right? They want to like have their solution and bring it in and make it work, right? What I find so remarkable about what he did is he didn't come in with some of the preconceived ideas about what people may need or who they are even, like just start with who they are. And he invested social capital in a way that sounds really impactful and profound, which it ties back to the episode with Wayne. There's a similarity in terms of how they operate in this sphere of philanthropy in terms of activating their social capital in the spaces that philanthropy is addressing and the kind of impact that can have. I think that's one of the things we're exploring on this season is just expanding what philanthropy looks like, how we understand who has resources and who has something to invest into a community that needs investment. Both Ken and Wayne represent a often overlooked and powerful source of investment or impact. In an upcoming episode, we're going to talk to Catherine Bowles of Save the Children. And I think it'll be really helpful for just our own exploration, but also our audiences to understand what happens when you match resources and people. Mm. And I mean resources as in financial resources and people on the ground who can provide that kind of facilitation that I think you're talking about with Ken and Wayne, because the best programs have both. Yes. You know, so I can definitely see sort of imbalance in philanthropy of we're going to go back to the the 90s and the early 2000s. I mean, I remember these years <laughs> too. And it was a lot for people to open their wallets and want to fix the problems that in a, a lot of people's minds had been left behind in this void when certain federal programs got cut in the 80s. Right. So things like mental health. We always need people to open their checkbooks. Yep. And today, the modern example of that is Salesforce. Salesforce has poured millions into Oakland Unified School District. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it goes to the Ed Fund or if it goes directly to the district itself. Mm. But whatever it is, for me, the schools should never be bankrupt. Yeah. If, if there's something happening on that balance sheet that's making it so that they can't provide textbooks and maintenance for the facilities, that is a government problem. Mm-hmm. But then then we can look at how can this money be used to improve people's access to what may already be there. But you have to start with something being there when critical infrastructure is missing. That's a failure on the part of the government. Yeah. So I think what's so interesting about how this particular season has unfolded is that we ended up having a little hot spot in Oakland. Yeah. But it's so critical that we talk about the communities that we know. Yeah. We talk about a place mm-hmm. that is relevant to us. Mm-hmm. And maybe someday we get to sit around a table with Wayne and with Ken yeah. and like hear that intersecting story and, and let them hash out like the way the world could be, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. even in this one neighborhood. And that just gets back to stakeholder engagement and, and really making sure that you have people with something to, to contribute, whether it's ideas or lived experience at the table. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and the people who can tell you what's not working. Right. Sometimes they don't know 
when you're talking about a traumatic environment, sometimes they don't even know what the problem is. Sometimes they do. Mm. <laughs> Maybe it is money. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's healthcare. Maybe it's keeping the lights on. But there are times when it's okay for people to not know how to make it better because they've been living so long in survival mode that they don't even know what might make it better yeah. next week. Yeah. That's valid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Not knowing is definitely valid. It's pretty important. Continuing on the stakeholder engagement theme, I think there's some crossover there in terms of the work that Ken does now with AIR. I think that's a pretty accurate way of describing what AIR does in terms of being able to represent independent journalists and, and media creators in being able to support themselves. Right. And I think this is another key theme throughout our season, which is what does it mean to give and create opportunities for people to make a living wage and how that intersects with charity and philanthropy and the problems that this sphere is often addressing and where that meets up or sort of butts up with the market. And I think that's such an interesting and powerful intersection. And part of what Ken is doing is sort of living at that intersection in the work with AIR, even though that might not be the way that it is framed or on the surface talked about. That is, in fact, where AIR is representing because it's a philanthropic organization helping with the economic empowerment of a group of people, which I think is such an interesting space to explore. And we've sort of done this in other episodes in terms of looking at what does living wage look like. But this one, I think, gets into a little bit more of the tangibility and details of what that actually means and an example of what that looks like for an independent part of the workforce, in this case, journalists or media creators of some kind. Yeah. Strikes me as common purpose, mm. just realigning business yeah. economies and society. Ken seems to be that person who finds the common purpose and is just determined to put some numbers around it. Yeah. And the other mm -hmm. person that comes up here is Grant. I was right. talking to mm -hmm. and he said something like if he added up the hours that go into his books, he would make less than minimum wage. Mm -hmm. That's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a creative endeavor, but my goodness, people have to eat. Yeah. Otherwise, we lose all of that creativity and innovation. And we know that innovation is about responsiveness. Mm -hmm. How can people be responsive if they have to wait a year to get the funding for the grant right. or the publisher has to sell X amount of books and then they'll send you a check? So I think that we are living in interesting times. Think about how we affirm our commitment to equal justice. Mm -hmm. It's a complicated part of the American story. Yeah, it might be helpful to set a little bit of context around when we had this conversation with Ken. We had this conversation a week after the racially targeted shootings in Atlanta. Ken being of Japanese descent and the Asian American community being a part of his experience. It's important that we don't brush it under the rug. Yes. There's affirming our commitment through speech. And then there's taking action. Mm -hmm. That affirmed commitment might be falling short. Even though we didn't spend as much time on that part of his journey and his experience, we did get to touch a little bit on it in terms of his personal work, a podcast that explores the Asian American experience. In the broader theme of what we're exploring in terms of a good society, understanding ethnicity and race, how that intersects with equality and freedom designed into the system of the society is critically important. And understanding where that went wrong in our past is a critical part of understanding how to build a better future.
Thanks for joining us. I'm Joanne. And I'm Sarah. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us for the next episode.